time for another Saturday classic. And today we have somebody who I know Tracy really finds endearing, uh, and that is Johnny Appleseed, who I think we were both pretty glad to learn was a real and actual person and not just a cartoon character or a folktale, which is often kind of what we get in terms of his life. Yes, there are so many things that I find genuinely endearing about Johnny Appleseed. One of them being there is a lot of walking in this story. So much walking and walking is one of my favorite things. Before we do get started, I wanted to note that when this episode originally came out, we heard from a lot of people about our comments uh, regarding his age when he died. At the time, the life expectancy was about 40, which a lot of people wrote in to note is because of, of childhood mortality skewing that number. And that's true. But if you live to age five at the time that he was alive, you still only had a life expectancy of about 55. So he still really was quite old. So try to grab an apple and we'll get started. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I am extremely excited about who we're talking about today. Me too. Uh, it's one of those people who is a figure in American history that some people may believe incorrectly to be mythical but was in fact real and that is Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, we learn about him as elementary school kids, but we really only get a very weird, brief sliver of the reality of his life. Yes, it's a sliver that almost makes him a caricature of himself. Yeah. I, people imagine, if I, if you say Johnny Appleseed, whether people think he's real or make-believe, probably going to imagine uh, a guy walking around in rags or skins, barefooted, with a sack full of apple seeds, sleeping out under the stars and planting his apple trees, and then moving on. Well, I've seen the cartoons. That's how it is. That's basically accurate. (laughs) Uh, At the same time, there's a whole much broader element of his life that had nothing to do. Uh, uh, Some people think of him as the first, sort of one of the first conservationists. It's really possible to also look at him as a very failed capitalist. And we're going to talk about that today. It's interesting because he's one of those that we don't really know a whole lot about his early life. No, we do know that he was born on September 26, 1774 in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and that his parents were Elizabeth Simons Chapman and Nathaniel Chapman, and he had an older sister named Elizabeth. He also had other siblings. Eventually. Um, He had a younger brother named Nathaniel, and his mother died uh, just a few weeks after Nathaniel was born, and then... Uh, the younger Nathaniel, sadly, yeah, also died. Passed shortly. away just after that. And that was when Johnny was... He wasn't quite two. Just a toddler. Yes, it's pretty unclear exactly where uh, Elizabeth and John went at that point. Uh, their father was serving as one of the Minutemen. He fought at Bunker Hill. Uh, and he was not home until 1781. So they were living with someone, presumably, but we don't know who. It's clear that there were relatives in that part of New England. Uh, If you look back far enough into New England history, pretty much everyone is related to everyone at some point. Yeah. So they had plenty of relatives in the area where they lived. Uh, We're just not sure who wound up taking care of them until 1781, when Dad came home uh, from, from the service He was released along with several other officers with the description of unsatisfactory management of the military stores. Uh, He went home 
without getting a pension or land, which was often a thing when you were, when you got out of the service, you would get a pension or land that was sort of your payment. Um, he, he got neither of those, but he did get a year's pay. So some people have looked at this as kind of evidence that, that his dad was kind of shiftless. Right. Uh, but at the same time, the armory itself had outlived its usefulness a little bit. So it may have been more like a layoff than a firing for truly bad behavior. Yeah, I think when we hear unsatisfactory management, we think there must have been something dicey going on. But it really could have just been part of things kind of shutting down naturally as well. Right. Uh, but Nathaniel did remarry. Uh, he married Lisa Cooley, and then the family lived in Longmeadow, which is south of Springfield, Massachusetts. And it grew and grew. It grew so much, uh, which is a little bit unfortunate because Nathaniel was not the greatest with things like money or farming. Uh, but Lisa was uh, very often pregnant, and she gave birth to 10 more children between 1781 and 1803. So that's 10 children in 21 and a half years. Uh, That is not in itself a surprising number of children for the era. What is a little more surprising is that they all seem to have survived until adulthood. And they were sharing a 400 square foot house with an attic for sleeping in. That's tight. It's not a lot of room. Uh, And so they're at some point uh, most likely because of a combination of a lot of people in a little space uh, and the alluring prospect of land that you could get for cheap out west, and probably not a lot of money around the house. John and his younger brother, Nathaniel, who was 11 or 15 at the time, left. Uh, the dates are a little unclear. It was either 1792 or 1796, depending on... Yeah, the accounts vary. Yeah, there's a lot of the accounts vary in this story. So John was either 18 or 22. His half-brother, Nathaniel, was either 11 or 15. They left Massachusetts together and traveled to western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, At some point in that era also, uh, there is a story. Uh, It's hard to substantiate a lot of this because medical records were not very clear at the time. But there's a story that John was kicked in the head by a horse at age 21. uh, And that the injury was severe enough that he had to have part of his skull removed to relieve the pressure which is a valid treatment for that kind of injury. Uh, but still, at the time, that's pretty primitive medical yeah, time. I'm, I'm making the, the scrunched up chills in my spine face. but uh. Right. There, there are people who attribute his later eccentricities to having had this injury. That makes sense, certainly. But since it's not well documented, we can't know for sure. Right. Uh, so together, they left. I kind of imagine John kind of going, it is too crowded in here. <laughs> Let's get out of town. We have no money. Let, we we can get some land if we go west, so let's do that. Yeah. And it was, you know, uh, just beyond the Ohio River was the frontier, and many people were making their land grabs. They they knew that there was potential property to be had, but it was very dangerous. Animals, snakes, other people. Lots, other people of every sort. Uh, the, the, there's sort of a perception that the other people threat was uh, Native Americans who were justifiably uh, defending their land, but also everyone. Yeah, other settlers that were trying to make their own way and trying to protect what they perceived as their opportunities. Uh, and so there was also a lot of illness and injury, presumably right. some of them from interactions with other people. Uh, and there wasn't really much in the way of medical care. Right. In addition to the fact that the medical care at the time was was often not sound from a 
scientific perspective, there just weren't a lot of doctors on the frontier. There were few people who had actual medical training. So if you got sick or hurt on the frontier, you might die of something that in a city would have been more treatable. Yeah. Uh, and they, so people and the government would buy or trade land from the Native Americans and then turn around and sell it for a huge profit or divide it up. Like it was the original flipping model. Right. Uh, and sometimes Congress would grant businesses the rights to divide up and dole out the land for money, uh, or in exchange for residency and improvement requirements. So things like orchards, developing orchards. Yes. Uh, and that, you know, was intended to keep people from flipping, from just reselling their stuff really quickly. Like, they actually wanted development and progress and not just money turnovers. Yes. Apples themselves were important uh, at the time. We think of apples today as what we eat in pies and and just eating them mm-hmm. and, and delicious things to eat. If you have ever seen the Disney Johnny Appleseed cartoon, <laughs> there is a lot of talk about ways to eat apples Eating apples was not the primary concern at the time at all. Uh, cider was a lot more important. There would be like little scrubby apples that were kind of bitter that would be pressed into uh, cider or made into vinegar. A lot of people were planting apples. And while they could be dried out and stored for the winter and serve as a source of nourishment, that wasn't much, their primary use. No, the primary use was cider, hard cider, and Applejack. It was about drunkenness. And then it is important to just take that that moment to note that I think we, uh, particularly American school children, are taught like that he sort of brought apples to the world. Mm. It was like, look at this wonderful thing I can bring you. But in fact, everyone was trying to grow apples. Right. The, well, and they weren't really that wonderful at that point. They were kind of gross to eat. The, they did not taste very good. They were not the big, juicy, yummy things we find no. in the supermarket. There were lots of other apple people and a lots of lots of other orchard people. Uh, his personality and things that he did just make him particularly memorable in the world of orchard planting uh, in those days of the frontier. Uh, he was also just, he had a knack for figuring out where people were going to go next. So he would get seeds from Pennsylvania in the winter by picking through the refuse mm-hmm. uh, at the, the cider presses. He would sort of pick through uh, this pulpy stuff that was left over after they made cider. He would gather up all these seeds and then he would head west uh, and he would plant the the seeds. He would use... Um, the brush he had cleared and possibly other brush to make a fence to keep animals out. Uh, and then he would go away. And when people made it into that territory that year or the following year, there would already be apple seedlings growing on the land, which they could buy from Chapman. Uh, so he was astute in that regard. He was super astute in that regard. Had he had been he actually turned that into a business model. Well, in a way, he did turn it into a... That was sort of his business model, but he didn't really care about money. It was uh, more of an apple-making model than a money-making model. <laughs> right. He uh, he gave a lot of seedlings away. Basically, if, if you were moving onto land that you were hoping to make your own and you could not afford your apple seedlings, Johnny Appleseed would give them to you. Uh, he also, if he saw horses that were being mistreated, he would buy them from you and then put them out to pasture. So endearing. He was very endearing. He just, I read a, a book that we'll talk more about at the end of the podcast uh, in this. And, and the writer compared him to Andrew Carnegie, except that Andrew Carnegie amassed wealth and then gave it away. 
And Johnny Appleseed just gave away all the wealth as he got it. So he never actually had a lot because he was giving it all away. <laughs> no accumulation. Kind it's of. kind of charming, but not really effective if your goal is actually to, to own anything. Um, Which apparently wasn't his goal. So. No. And if it was his goal, he didn't do it very well. Uh, we don't really know his exact route through that part of the world. We sort of know generally that he went from New York into Pennsylvania and then started moving into Ohio and Indiana. Uh, several people have tried to kind of recreate the, the route that he followed um, with varying success. There's not a lot of actual documentation surviving about his life at the time. Well, and even the documentation is largely based on word of mouth, so yes. its accuracy is not verifiable. It's, it's yes. And in some cases, we know that the people who were supplying these oral accounts were not necessarily all that trustworthy as historians. Because a lot of the travel that he was doing was ahead of the, the influx of settlers, uh, there weren't really roads. It would be sort of hard going. A lot of the actual written detail that we have comes from trading post ledgers. Uh, and one of the first of these is in 1797 in Warren, Pennsylvania, uh, at which point John and Nathaniel were recorded to be there to buy things. Some of the things that he bought included a spike gimlet, which is a tool mm-hmm. that he could have used for all kinds of things out on the frontier. It was a, a very multi-use tool. Uh, he also bought books, cheese, and sundries. And that's really all have, you need. That's Yeah, <laughs> your gimlet, your books, and your cheese. Man, if I had books and cheese, I would be set. Uh, so, yeah, he that's... We know that he was in Warren at that time. There are other trading post ledger records of of his movements, but not enough to really piece together. This is exactly how he traveled and when. And there is some belief that his first orchard was actually near Warren on the Allegheny River. Uh, Warren was very small, not having great luck. A storm had knocked down all the trees. A fire burned up all the dead wood. And then the relationship between the settlers and the Native Americans in the area got really hostile. It was not really the most welcoming or perfect place to right. settle. There was pretty much one person living there when they got there. Uh, that was Dan McKay or McQuay. He worked for the Holland Company, which was one of the agencies that was dividing up and selling off land. Um, he may have employed the Chapman brothers to kind of guard the land against squatters and timber thieves. Uh, but it's a little unclear whether he was actually working for this man or or if they just knew each other. Um, but uh, according to writings of Lansing Wetmore uh, in the Warren Ledger, uh, John eventually picked a location for a nursery in 1798. Uh, this is another example of we don't really know how accurate this person's report was. Uh, he was a lawyer and a judge and was pretty well respected at the time, but he was also really fond of a good story. Um, and we know from other accounts that there are things that he got completely wrong. So... It discredits his... It discredits him a little bit. selling a little bit. But probably the first orchard that Johnny Appleseed planted uh, was near Warren uh, sometime around 1798. So we know Johnny wanted land, and he did buy plenty of land, but he didn't stay on it to fulfill the terms of his claims, or claim jumpers got in there and took it from him. Right. Uh, So he had... Skill and, you know, acumen for planting things, but not so much with the patience. No, he didn't stick through with things. He would sign 99-year leases on stuff and then either not pay the bills or not fulfill the residency requirements to, to keep that lease. So there, he did a lot of getting land and then the land would fall out of his hands. 
Um, he was also choosing the hardest way to grow apples. Uh, the An easier way to grow apples is to graft cuttings of apples onto rootstock, and that's pretty much how apple cultivation happens now. Uh, what he was doing, because he felt that it was kinder on the plants and that it was, in fact, wicked to cut up plants to graft them onto things, uh, what he was doing was planting seeds. Uh, that is, There's a number of reasons why that is not the best way to cultivate apples. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I have done some apple seedlings, and they are difficult, and they don't bear fruit often very right. well for they, a long time. They tend to grow so big that it's hard to harvest from them, and it takes them a very long time to actually put out apples. And then the apples that they do put out, it's really a mix of what you're going to get. Uh, apple seeds are pretty cool because they're heterozygous, so they have the code, the genetic code for all kinds of different apples in one seed. Mm-hmm. You don't really know which of those genes are going to express when the tree is growing. So you might plant seeds from a delicious apple and get disgusting apples. Yeah, there are so many factors that go into something like that from like the soil pH, you know, what kind of uh, winters and summers it has when it's young. Like if it has a drought, that'll affect what is produced. So it is, it's a very unpredictable and difficult way to get fruit. Right. Well, But on the other side of that, seeds are a lot more flexible and when you can plant them, you can really only graft in the spring, but you can plant seeds sort of nine months out of the year. Uh, And because of what we said before, those little bitter, very tough, tart apples were in high demand for making vinegar and cider uh, and also those things were in demand because vinegar was considered to be medicinal. Uh, and because out on the frontier, there was not a lot to do. People were very interested in drinking. So it didn't matter so much if you produced delicious fruit. No. Just as long as you were producing something that could be used in some way it to make fine. vinegar cider. Yes. Uh, so some he sold, as you said, and some he gave away. I also wonder, going back to his various pieces of property, how many people just inherited you know, pre-developed apple orchards. Right, because he just never went because back. Because he just abandoned the, the spot. Yeah. Uh, there aren't a lot of records that survive, uh, whether it's because bookkeeping was sloppy or just, you know, time has kind of erased some of the germane documents. But the oral history is pretty unanimous in that if you couldn't afford trees, he would just give them to you. Yes. And the lack of records is a a problem in terms of tracking many things, you know, his sale of seedlings, his land, his forfeits of the land, whether or not, and this is getting into some interesting elements of the story, he was actually a minister or a missionary of the Church of New Jerusalem. Yes, the Church of the New Jerusalem is a church that people may not have heard of uh, now. It was also known as the New Church, and it was based on Swedish uh, mystic Emanuel Swedenborg, who was a popular religious figure for about 100 years following his death in 1772. The Swedenborg uh, sect was really intellectual. He wrote volumes and volumes and volumes about his divine revelations and his spiritual thought. He was very specific about things. Uh, A lot of Religious writing can be kind of general in describing uh, what God is like or what heaven is like. And he was really down to the details and described his religious visions in extreme detail. Uh, and he was also very influential. Some of the notable people who were influenced by him include William Blake, Charles Baudelaire, Goethe, Carl, Carl Jung, uh, William Butler Yeats, Walt Whitman, who I love, 
uh, and Emerson. So he was a very influential writer at the time. He had a really strong streak of intellectualism. Um, his uh, with the church that was founded on his teachings, which was known as the New Church, um, had sort of areas of the United States that was developing at the time that, uh, that where that was extremely popular. And it was also very different from a lot of the other church going that was happening on the frontier, which was much more about tent revivals and that sort of thing. And this was a much thinkier <laughs> sort of religion. And Johnny Appleseed embraced it. He really did. Uh, he actually started preaching the new church teachings while he traveled about. So when he was in Ohio and he would take shelter with people, he would bring them the good news straight from heaven. Yes. Uh <laughs> In 1829, a fundamentalist preacher named Adam Payne actually asked a crowd, where is your barefoot pilgrim now? And John Chapman, dressed in rags with unkempt hair, held up a foot and said, here he is. Yes. <laughs> Which is so charming. And that's sort of an example of the intersection between the more tent revival-esque religion that was uh, pretty common in a lot of that area at the time and, and then John Chapman, who was really an outsider and a loner and not like that at all. Um, he also, he definitely was not operating in isolation. The, the new church knew that he was around and knew that he was spreading their teachings, um, because he appears in reports of the new church and in other writings from the church starting in around 1817. So he was a known figure to the church. As part of this whole religious focus, he was a vegetarian and he was celibate. As in our recent episode, about Marjorie Kemp, though, he did have spiritual relationships with people who were not physically present. So he was having what we're going to call spiritual intercourse um, with the spirits of two deceased women who were to, he was told in a vision that they were going to be his companions in the afterlife. This is also something that Swedenborg wrote about in his writings. Yeah, apparently he had apparently hoped to propose to uh, Nancy Tannehill, but she was already engaged. Yes, that's one of those stories that exists about his life that is sort of one person's word. And, and we don't really know if that's a true story, but we do know that he, he never got married. Uh, he was reported to be celibate for his whole life. Um, I don't know if, if the Nancy Tannehill story is a true story or not, but it is a thing that somebody said about him at one point. Yeah, it's a, it's a side note yes. in, in the story of his relations with... Uh, women and with his religion, since those all sort of, uh, they contradict each other a little bit. Yes. And now we're getting to an era that is often talked about in history, but not necessarily in relation to him, which is the War of 1812. Yes. He was really skilled at walking. Like, he, that's, walking was something that he was just great at. And he, uh, he was reported to often not wear shoes, and he walked so much that his feet had these leather-like calluses. And because he was so good at walking around and because he knew the territory so well, settlers sometimes would hire him to kind of keep an eye on things as tensions were starting to grow leading up to the War of 1812. Um, at least one time, he either falsely or mistakenly raised the alarm about uh, incoming troops who were going to attack when it they were actually American troops. Whoops. Oops. Um, in spite of that, or maybe because... Uh, this story had not reached where he was. He did have a very Paul Revere's ride-esque race for help that he reportedly undertook. Uh, in September of 1812, a colonel named Colonel Kratzer uh, was going to remove the Native American population from southwest Ohio. Uh, he convinced a preacher named James Coppice, who the Native Americans there trusted, to help him move them, like remove them from their homes. 
he did this by saying that he didn't want bloodshed. He just wanted to take these people under the protection of the government. Uh, the the reverend believed him and and convinced the the people in this one village to move. The response of the colonel's troops then was to set their homes on fire, and this sparked a lot of problems, yeah. understandably, because that was a terrible thing to do. Uh, there were acts of revenge on both sides. It's kind of a long and drawn-out story, but there was, you know, the the one side would ambush another side, and then the other side would retaliate, and then un, an, an unfortunate fallout from that, a young person would wind up being killed. It's a very kind of long and convoluted story, but it became clear that things were getting very bad and that a full-scale attack was incoming. Uh, and people were very worried and, and were basically like, we need backup. And Johnny Appleseed volunteered to be that backup uh, or to go for that backup. Um, according to the lore, he ran bareheaded and barefooted, leaving at sunset and running through the night, uh, running a distance that was effectively a marathon there and a marathon back. Holly might know about how hard that would be. Um, it's actually more likely that he was on horse, but the story is that he was on foot running, and he would raise the alarm at farms and homesteads that he passed on the way um, as he ran to a, a fort at Mount Vernon to get help and to raise the alarm. This whole story probably has a fair amount of... Uh, it's been mythologized. It's definitely been mythologized. Um, it does appear to be a historic thing that actually happened, Probably he was not running on foot the whole time. Um, uh, but that really started to solidify him as a mythic figure, even at the time. Not just now, even though now that, that's a story that maybe people outside of that region of the United States haven't heard about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was becoming a mythic figure even while he was alive. Well, that was probably aided by the fact that he was a little bit, as you said, kind of an odd fellow. Yes, he yes. wasn't really a mainstream society kind of guy. So he already had a bit of a mystique in all likelihood. And then that combined with some of these sort of amazing tales of his doings. Right. That really is fertile ground to create a mythology around someone. Yes, he was very odd and very memorable. And usually the, because of his pattern of moving around, he would move into a place before a lot of people were there. He would do things that were memorable, and then the population would start to move into this area where he previously had been and had already made a name for himself, and they would sort of hear these Johnny Appleseed stories. Um, so he had a pretty huge reputation uh, in the era in which he lived and in the, the years afterward. And that has continued today. People don't necessarily know all these other aspects of him, but they uh, most people have heard of Johnny Appleseed before. Yeah, and I mean, he's got the name Johnny Appleseed and not John Chapman, so. Right. So, in 1805, his family um, had moved to Duck Creek, Ohio, and they were in really rough financial situation. Right. Uh, but there isn't evidence of whether or not John reunited with them. Uh, he was kind of a loner, as we had said, uh, even from the church, even though he supported it and spread their teachings, he wasn't really, you know, attending socials or attending regular. Right. And their writing about him started to fall off as he got later in his life uh, and maybe increasingly odd in his behavior. Um, so we don't really know if he was on good terms with his family when he died. We we don't really know if he had any close relationships at that point. Um, but he did die peacefully, but of illness at the age of 70, um, at the home of William Worth in, uh, his home was north of Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, and that was in March of 1845. 
Um, the official accounts at the time kind of vary in their specific dates, but generally recognize that sometime in the middle of March, uh, the cause was known as winter plague, and that was sort of a catch-all term for various diseases that people tended to get more in the winter. Uh, there was an obituary that ran on March 22nd, 1845 in the Fort Wayne Sentinel. And what is kind of striking to me about his death at the age of 70 is that the life expectancy at the time was a little over 40. So he was very, very old yes. when he passed away. So not at all surprising that a man of that advanced age would succumb to winter plague. Yes. I mean, we know even in modern times the elderly are, you know, at greater risk of even, you know, pretty minor illnesses that younger people could live through. So to have been 70 is pretty impressive. Right. Uh, especially when you consider that he spent most of his time wandering around in the woods you know what I mean? It wasn't like he lived a, a life of luxury and comfort with every possible, you know, cleanliness applied to his yeah. universe. Well, not even luxury and comfort, but just basic medical care and, and having a home. He didn't really have any of that. He did own some things when he died. Uh, and among his his effects uh, after his death, uh, he had a gray mare, uh, several parcels of land, an orchard of 2,000 apple trees and various other things. Uh, some of the land got sold off to pay the back taxes on that land because he had not paid it, which is not surprising. Um, and then the remainder of his possessions were sold off for a total of $409, which would come to about $9,000 today. But pretty much all of that money went to paying off various things that he had owed during his life. Some of these claims might have been true and some of them might have been false. Uh, but there were people who claimed to, who have, to have provided him room and board in his later life. He definitely... As uh, as his M.O. was kind of to get land, plant things, and leave, he definitely did owe money on things. So by the time all of that was was taken care of, there was really no money left in the John Chapman slash Johnny Appleseed estate. Yeah, he had no fiscal legacy to speak of. It is interesting, I think, that uh, the obituary from the church did not appear until two years after he had died. Yes, it was much later, which is Interesting, and I don't think we know why it took so long. No, that if we do, I did not find that. Unless it's just a matter of things taking a while to get back to them, right? Uh, and here's another interesting thing about him, which sort of I also find oddly endearing. He did a little bit of self mythologizing and promoting in right. terms of his mythos. He was simultaneously a loner and someone who liked to talk to people. So he did talk to people, and he talked to people about himself. He liked to entertain little children. He would entertain little boys by, like, uh, poking pins into his crazy calloused feet. And, and he liked to give presents to uh, to children. Like, he, he was a person who endeared himself to others. People generally liked him a lot. But the way that he talked about himself was often it's sort of selective. Like, he, he didn't really talk about his many, many failed purchases of land. You know, he talked about being a vegetarian and spreading the word of God and and planting apple trees. And, and so he had sort of made himself into a, an easily mythologized person uh, before he became a sort of mythic character in American history. Even at the time, there were people, pretty well-known people, who sort of eulogized him either in, in speeches or in print. Uh, there was a reported eulogy by Sam Houston, who was a senator. Uh, that is a little bit suspect. We're not sure if that really happened or if it's apocryphal. Uh, William T. Sherman is one of the people who allegedly uh, 
spoke very highly of, of Johnny Appleseed later on. Uh, there is also a lot of reports that he had a really good relationship with many of the Native American tribes in the frontier, even when those tribes were really at odds with the settlers. Uh, and that is one of those oral history things that we don't really have written substantiation of, but that's sort of the aura that he had was, which was that he was friendly with everyone, even when the people he was friendly with were not friendly with one another. Well, and I think that either could be, you get into a chicken or the egg thing where it's like, is that, was that because he was always sort of apart from everyone to some degree? Like he wasn't antisocial, but he wasn't really, as we said, part of a, you know, social group regularly. So he could kind of operate between those two because he, he didn't have obvious allegiance to anyone. Right. Um, or, I mean, did he perpetrate that and, you know, continue that behavior because he recognized that it was beneficial? We don't know. Yes. Um, there was also the part about how he did seem to, in a lot of ways, because he was not exploiting land, he was he was sort of tending trees and not wanting to harm things and not wanting to harm animals. There is the idea that he had a good relationship with uh, other cultures that also had a similar Mentality. It's kind of a misperception that the entirety of Native American history was all about conserving the land, but that that definitely was a thread in some tribes, and so that is sort of a commonality that he had with other people. Also, that the, there have continued to be all kinds of other writings about Johnny Appleseed. Uh, there was an article in Harper's New Monthly about him in 1871 that was uh, extremely lengthy. He was the subject of the poem In Praise of Johnny Appleseed by Vacha Lindsay in 1923. And he's also been in various other po- uh, poems and films. Um, Disney has a thing from 1948 that's about Johnny Appleseed. Ninety uh, percent of it is just wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, it's one of the things that figures prominently in it is that he wore a sauce pot on his head as a hat. There is actually one historical account of him wearing three things on his head as hats simultaneously, and the middle of them was a saucepan. But I don't think he wore a saucepan on his head <laughs> in common practice. Um, so if you but watch it's that, really good it's, for animation purposes. It is a delightful thing to watch, but it is so incorrect in so many ways. Um, there are apple apples surviving that are probably descended from apple trees that he planted. Apple trees don't live hundreds of years. Uh, but because people propagate apple trees by grafting things, those grafts are clones of the trees that they were cut off of. So uh, there are some trees in existence that, that probably came from ones that he planted. But a lot of the orchards that were credited to him um, as far as starting them were burned down during the temperance move it, movement. Because, as we said, apples at the time were for drinking, not for eating. Not as a delightful nature's candy treat. Yeah. So yeah, Johnny Appleseed, I had no idea of either the depths of his religious devotion uh, or the, the sort of Paul Revere-like run. I didn't know of either of those t- two things when I started researching this podcast. I kind of can't stop thinking about whether or not he actually ran that. Because there are people that can run that much. I mean, there are ultra marathoners out there. Yes. And if he was wandering around all the time, it's possible. Yes. Uh, I read the book Johnny Appleseed, The Man, the Myth, and the American Story by Howard Means as part of my research for this podcast. There is so much more information about him and about the time in that book than we have gone into today. But one of the things that it talks about is people trying to determine whether that run was possible to have done on foot. Uh, and the answer is sort of maybe. 
So yeah, so it makes sense that I would be sitting here going, I don't, he could have done it, maybe. Hey, since uh, these episodes that we're sharing are past classics, uh, we have some updated information that will supersede the contact stuff you've heard before. If you want to email us, our email address is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, and you can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. You can also find us at mistinhistory.com, and you can visit our parent company, Works at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 